Well, good morning, boys and girls. How are you this morning? You know, I couldn't help but, but think when y'all you came in from the 1050 service downstairs and sat on the front pew, usually deacons sit on the front pew in a lot of churches, and so y'all looked like little deacons sitting on the front pew. Would y'all, would y'all be deacons? No. No? Okay. <laughs> Maybe one day you will be, and so it's good to be in God's house as children, and, and God will grow you up and use you one day in a mighty way for his kingdom. Andrew Taylor has the Happy Club bag. It's a boy's turn. Let me see what he brought. It's a box. Oh, Andrew, this knot is so tight. <laughs> I tied it. You tied it. Thank you. <laughs> Can somebody play the uh, Jeopardy music? <laughs> Andrew, you look like a square knot. What can we talk about while Andrew's untying his knot? Oh, here we go. You got it? How many knots are there? Maybe two. I think he braided it. You got it? Can you just tell me what's in the bag? And I'll take your word for it. Yeah, let's see. Are you getting close? Well, boys and girls, I want to talk about untying knots today in Happy Club bag. There'll be all kinds of challenges in life, and you just got to persevere. Let's see what we got. It's a box helicage, the unstoppable, crashable helicopter. What is it? No, it's a helicopter. It's a what? A helicopter? Air Hogs RC helicopter. Is it like remote control? Yes. Don't take it out. (laughs) Although this would be a great place for a remote control helicopter. You think we ought to try it? No, 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 don't, don't, don't tempt me. I see it's a remote controlled helicopter. I've seen these things like in shopping malls. And somebody will be standing in a mall and the helicopter will be going up and down remote control. And, And boys and girls, I guess... What, what I want to talk about this morning, do you think, I, I hope this question isn't too hard, do you think God has us on remote control? No. No, he doesn't, does he? You know, some people think that there's a God and he, and he like moves, controls, and people do everything that he wants them to do, and, 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 and they don't have a choice, they don't have any freedom in what they do. I don't think God's like that. I think God gives us freedom. He doesn't put us on remote control, but he gives us freedom because he wants us to choose to love him. He wants us to desire to be in a relationship with him. Does that make sense? He doesn't doesn't treat us like puppets or robots or remote control where we don't have, and we just got to do whatever he jerks us around to do. That wouldn't be good. That's not love, is it? No. No. God wants us to love him because we want to because we choose to, and we have the freedom to do so. 
So some toys, Andrew, are like remote-controlled helicopters, and you just work a little control pad, and things go up and down and front and back and left and right like this helicopter. But God doesn't treat us like that. God gives us the freedom to love him, to choose to love him, to want to love him. And I hope that each of you will do that. So let's pray right now and thank God for freedom he gives us. You pray after me. Dear God, thank you for freedom to love you. Help us choose to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, Andrew. That looks like a cool toy. Sometime let's get together and play with it. Okay? We'll have a good time. Yes, Miss Karen, it's a girl's turn. Rachel, will you take the bag home and bring something special back next week? All right, boys and girls, if you'd like to go to children's worship with Miss Karen, you can go with her.
Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven, and that's exactly what they were singing about. The translation of the words is bread of the angels, now become bread for all mankind, poor and needy though we be. That's what Jesus did for us. He became the bread of life, broken for us. Ephesians 1.14 says he's the down payment of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. Will you stand as we sing, I will sing of my Redeemer. God, we just love you and thank you so much for this day. God, I just want you to mention we thank you for the showers that you're sending, God, to replenish the fields. We just love you and praise you. God, thank you for this church. God, thank you for the leadership in this church and pray that you'll just be with us, God. God, as we now we bring these ties to you, God, to just pray that we'll use them to the further kindness of your kingdom in your precious name. Amen.
Thank you, choir. There is a time when you wait. So often it seems like we run ahead, doesn't it? And God is trying to teach us patience. I've been in a series on the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And we've looked at Ephesus and Smyrna and um, Thyatira and Pergamum and Sardis. We've come to the church at Philadelphia. It's the sixth of the seven letters. And it's in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. The sermon is entitled, The Open Door of Opportunity. Because what struck me so about this passage is that even though Philadelphia is a small, struggling, fledgling church facing persecution, facing tribulation, yet John has a revelation from the risen Christ that they are to be an open door. Imagine that, little Philadelphia church in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, supposed to be an open door for the gospel, for evangelism, for missions. And if that expectation is placed upon Philadelphia with all of its challenges, what expectations does Christ have for us today? And I remind you, the church is not this building. I mean, we can open the doors all day long. The church is is you. How open is your heart to share the gospel with others? Revelation 3, verse 7 says this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. He says that to about every church, doesn't he? Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word of patient endurance." I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon. So hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Then as he concludes each letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's interesting. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It doesn't say to your church or to Philadelphia. It says to the churches. So what John provided in his revelation to Philadelphia is as relevant for us today. 2,000 years later in Tifton, Georgia, as it was when it was written. Let's bow together. Father, as we come to consider this, this word to the church at Philadelphia, remind us that it's not just an ancient word to a, an old church on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago, but it's a word to us today because If Philadelphia had an open door, how much more so do we here in Tifton, an open door to go out and tell others about you. 
quicken our hearts and our consciences and our spirits to respond to your claim, to your desire to tell others. In Jesus' name, amen. As the postman continued his circular route, starting with Ephesus on the coast of the Aegean Sea, moving clockwise around to each of the seven churches, he comes to Philadelphia, which is the sixth church. It's about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was not an old city as cities went. It was only a couple hundred years old when this letter was written. It was founded by a man whose nickname in the Greek was Philadelphus, so it was named for its founder. And the word Philadelphia, you're probably aware of, comes from two Greek words, philos, meaning love, autophos, meaning brother. So Philadelphia means brotherly love. Philadelphia in, a, in a Pennsylvania today means the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia stood at the place where the borders of three countries came together. And because of its strategic location, it was often called the gateway to the east. As a matter of fact, there was a road that came all the way from Europe through Philadelphia to the east. It connected one continent, the European continent, to Asia. And it was for that primary reason that Philadelphia was built. To the east lay uncivilized, barbaric tribes. So Philadelphia was intended by the Greeks to be kind of an outpost, a missionary outpost for the Greek culture, for the Greek language, for the Greek way of life, for the Greek civilization to those barbarian tribes and nations to the east. That was its purpose, to carry the Greek culture to the east. And in the midst of that pagan environment, the church at Philadelphia was standing strong. In contrast to the church at Sardis, about whom Jesus had nothing good to say, here is Philadelphia, about whom Jesus has nothing bad to say. It's all good. Verse 8, I know your works. I know you have but little power, yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. In spite of the persecution and tribulation around that little church, they hung in there. Verse 10, you have kept my word of patient endurance. More often than not, problems, struggles, tribulation strengthens the church. You would think it'd be the other way around, that when problems come, churches would grow weak, but that's not the case when when muscles are exercised, strength is built. And it's the same way with the church. It's the church that has no troubles, that has no problems, that gets complacent and comfortable and lazy. And like we talked about Sardis last week, is lulled to sleep. But churches like Philadelphia that remain faithful with patient endurance, that have only a little power, but they have not forgotten the word and have not denied the name of Christ, those churches are the one that, ones that are strengthened and that grow and that flourish because tribulation strengthens a church. It just makes it stronger, just makes it determined not to cave in. And that's what happened to the Philadelphia church. Let's look at the text. In verse 7 it says, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. The reference is to um, a servant 
of the King Hezekiah. And it comes from Isaiah 22, 22. And I'm just going to back up and read that passage for you. There was a, a, a steward named Shebna who worked for King Hezekiah. And apparently he committed fraud. He uh, gave business to folks who gave him kickbacks. So what's happening today is nothing new. It's been going on in government for years. And in verse 20, Shebna is caught and he is punished and he is replaced by a man by the name of Eliakim in Isaiah 22:20. 20. Listen to how familiar this sounds. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your girdle on him and he will commit your authority to his hands and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. <clears throat> so that reference to Eliakim with King David is brought forward and given to Jesus who has the keys to the kingdom. Not just Peter uh, from Matthew, but here Jesus has the key of David. And this key is not literal, a, a literal key to a doorway for King Hezekiah or even for the kingdom of heaven. It's not a key that opens a door that, that you have to have in order to get in. It's symbolic and it represents the fact that Jesus is the one who gives you access to the king. All of heaven's resources, all of heaven's authority have been given to Jesus and if you want access to the kingdom of God, you go through the one who holds the key. And the one who holds the key is Jesus. He's the one who gives you access. Why is that so important? <clears throat> well, the, the answer to that is, if you want access to the Father, you don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through me. Sometimes someone will come to me and say, Brother Wayne, pray for me. Pray for this situation. I'll say, I'll be happy to. But let me tell you, your prayers are as effective as mine. God hears your prayers as well as he does anyone else's. But you have to go through Jesus. And if it seems like heaven's resources or heaven's authority are not available to you right now, you might be using the wrong key. You might be trying to get to the Father through some other avenue, through some other channel. There is no other access to the Father except through Jesus. So if it seems like your prayers aren't getting above the ceiling, as I hear people say one time, then what you need to do is take a step back and turn your attention and your focus on Jesus and just look at him, go to him, and he will give you access to the Father. Turn your attention on him. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. You remember what I said about Philadelphia? It was intended to be an open door for the Greek civilization to the eastern barbaric nations. Well, Jesus is saying here, I don't want you to carry Greek culture eastward. I want you to carry the gospel you have an open door. It is open for the gospel. You carry it as far and as widely as you possibly can because the doorway is open now and who knows how long that door is going to remain open. You go through whatever door you can. You're standing on whatever threshold he has placed you in and you take advantage of that. You use that opportunity to, to go and share the gospel because that door might not always 
be open. I was talking to some Gideons recently who came to see me about, about their work, and, and I support the work of the Gideons, taking Bibles out all over the world into hotels and motels and on school campuses and into prisons and, and all over the nations of the world. But there are some nations that the Gideons don't have access to. And, I, and so I asked them, I said, how many nations are you able to take the gospel into and which ones can, can you not take it? And they said it used to be about 178. I think it's up to about 190 nations around the world now that the Gideons are taking God's word and are able to, to penetrate that, that nation with the gospel. But the nations where they're not welcome are mostly Muslim nations in the Middle East and in the Far East. And we just hope and pray that one day that, that door will open because the Gideons are poised and ready to carry God's word and missionaries are ready to go into those nations. And they're ready to tell people about Jesus because when the door opens, you have to be ready and you have to go. Who knows what may happen in our own nation one day. It seems like more and more, in order to be politically correct, we cannot stand up and, and give a gospel witness to Jesus. I was in a hotel recently, and I saw a Gideon Bible, and beside it I saw the Koran. In, in hotels now in America, when is it going to be that Bibles are no longer welcome? When is it going to be that if you tell somebody about Jesus, you're, you're persecuted for it because you... You don't have the freedom, maybe one day, that, that we have today. So my point is, while the door is open, tell all you can, everything you can, for as long as you can. God has placed you on the threshold somewhere. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be at school. It might be at work. It might be among your family. And Jesus says, you have an open door which no one is able to shut. You may have just a little power, but be faithful. Do not deny his name. Keep his word, and you'll be rewarded. When the doorway opens, take it. Go through it. Why? Because he says in verse 11, I am coming soon. The word soon there really means suddenly. It means unexpectedly. Now, this was written, John's, John's revelation, about in the early A.D. 90s. So Jesus has uh, been resurrected about 60 years earlier. People are being persecuted. They're saying, when's he coming again? He said he would come soon. When's he coming again? We can't, we can't put up with this persecution much longer. And so this word is, I'm coming unexpectedly. I'm coming suddenly. It does not mean that you need to um, sell all your belongings and max out your credit card and buy some lawn chairs and go up on a mountain somewhere and look into the eastern sky. People have done that. Crazy. What we're supposed to do is be faithful and be ready right now because Jesus may come before this sermon is finished. And gosh, I, I just got to tell I woke up at four o'clock this morning and I just had such a burden. Because there's so many people who have not heard the gospel, and, and I feel such a responsibility to tell it as clearly as possible so that if Jesus comes before this day is out, everybody will have had the opportunity to hear and respond. 
because that burden, that onus of responsibility is on our shoulders. Live each day with the realization that the, the trumpet may sound and the clouds may part and King Jesus may come riding in to take his faithful with him to heaven. So hold fast, be faithful, tell as many as you possibly can because he is coming suddenly and unexpectedly. He tells us that over and over again in his parables. It'll be sudden, it'll be unexpected. So what are you doing now that you would be ashamed of if Jesus were coming today? Why aren't you doing the things that Jesus would be proud of if Jesus comes today? We're all going to stand before his judgment seat. So be faithful because he says, I am coming soon. Be faithful and hold fast to the crown that he's already given you. The crown is the crown of righteousness, not anything that you have done. Jesus has given you that crown when you confess your sins and he has cleansed you and forgiven you. That crown is yours. Hold fast to it. I read an interesting sociology study by author Bruce Wilkinson. He's a Christian author and he's written a lot about the faith, but he said when he had children, he used to uh, give them an allowance at the end of the week. How many of you give your children, gave your children allowances or you get allowances? I used to get $2.50 every Saturday and I had to buy, I, I like that, I had freedom to go out and buy my own clothes and and those kinds of things. Susan did a lot better than I. She was paid twenty-one fifty. Twenty-one meals a week and fifty cents on the weekends. That's what her daddy told her her allowance was. <clears throat> well, Bruce Wilkinson gave his children their allowance in the week, but after a while he said, I'm gonna try something different. He said, instead of giving your allowance at the end of the week, after you do your chores. I'm going to give your allowance at the beginning of the week with the expectation that you will do your chores. Now, if you do not do your chores, I'll take the money away at the end of the week. And what he discovered was that his children were much more motivated by the potential loss of rewards because you have the money in your hand and he comes and takes it out. I mean, you already have it. You're clutching it and it's removed. He said they were more motivated by the loss of reward than by the prospect of gaining future reward. So what Jesus is telling us is that when when you are saved by the blood of the Lamb, you are given a crown of righteousness, and that crown is already in your hands, and you hold fast to it. Don't lose it. Keep that word with patient endurance, and he will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming upon the whole world. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, will you be rewarded or will you be filled with regret? He says in verse 12, He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. The background of this verse, and I love the history that that Philadelphia has, that they understand this letter, this message that the angel has given John. He says, I will, you will never go out of it. Philadelphia was built on an area where volcanoes were active. And so underneath the city of Philadelphia, 
<clears throat> there were always rumblings. The strata was always shifting, and there was always instability. And so when they had a, a, a light earthquake, and, and the masonry and the bricks and rocks would tumble, everybody in Philadelphia ran out of the city into the countryside for safety. And then when the ground became stable again, they migrated back into the city. So throughout their lives, they were running out and in and out and in because of the occasional volcanic activity. Jesus is saying, I will put you in my temple and you never have to run out of it. Again, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear, constantly running here and there, scurrying in and out. Because you'll be safe with me. And he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now what's interesting about that is that if a man served the state well in Philadelphia, maybe he had a noble record as a, as a magistrate or as a benefactor or as a priest, the city would erect a pillar in a temple and put their name on it. So anybody who came into worship at that temple would see the name of that, that important person in the city of Philadelphia. Now what's sad about that is a lot of people put a lot of stock in that, but that pillar is in ruins today. Let me tell you, in Philadelphia, you can't find those pillars, you can't find those temples, you can't find those names that were inscribed on those pillars by the people of Philadelphia. But... Jesus says when he puts our name on a pillar in the temple of God, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, that temple will never fall. That pillar will always be standing, and that name on that pillar is like having your name in the book of life. It will be there forever. And so that's why he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't run in and out. Don't worry about the pillars that have men's names inscribed on them in a temple in Philadelphia. Worry about your name inscribed on a pillar in the temple of God. It will be standing forever and ever. There's a doorway of opportunity that he has presented us. You know, with technology today, we have television and, and radio and computers and internet and and missionaries, we have so many opportunities to go and tell. And it's, it's an open door. And Philadelphia was meant to be an open door for the Greek culture, but the angel here says, no, it's an open door for the gospel. And he's telling that to Philadelphia 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor, and he's telling it to Tifton, Georgia in 2013. Today, it's an open door. And if those expectations were on the shoulders of little, struggling, fledgling Philadelphia, how much more so? Our expectations on First Baptist Tifton. I'm so proud. I'm so thankful. Glory to God that all the Easter lilies on this cross are there representing we reached our goal for North American missions. Amen. Not just money, not, and, and as important as that is, and prayer, as important as that is, missionaries going out and telling. We had, what, three mission teams last week during spring break that were in, in Guatemala and Dominica and um, Homestead, Florida. And uh, missionaries out today whom we support while the door is open because that door might not always be open. 
We need to go where we can, while we can, for as long as we can. I read about two, speaking of open doors, I read about two dogs that were arguing. You know how dogs argue in dog language? Can't you see them just kind of yapping at each other? It was a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. The Great Dane was barking like this, and the Chihuahua was yapping like this. See? And they were arguing back and forth over who could open this closed door the easiest. The Great Dane said, you are crazy. Up on your hind legs, you can't even reach the doorknob. The Chihuahua said, I can get in faster than you can. The Great Dane said, no, you can't. They argued back and forth. Finally, the Great Dane said, get out of the way and let me show you. So the Great Dane jumped up on the door and he got his mouth on the doorknob. And and after about, you know, working it back and forth and in and out, after about five minutes, he finally got the doorknob turned and pushed the door open and stepped back and proudly looked at the Chihuahua and said, beat that. He closed the door back. So the Chihuahua said, okay, watch this. And the Chihuahua came up and he started scratching at the door a little bit. And after about 30 seconds, the master came and opened the door. What's the point? The point is, it's not the big dogs who try to do everything on their own who get in. It's the little dogs who know they're unable to reach the door on their own. And so they're willing to ask for help. And the Father comes and lets you in. That's the point. You see how this message from the risen Christ came to Philadelphia in language and pictures and experiences they could understand. You're an open door, not for Greek culture, but for the gospel. I'll put you in a, in a pillar in the temple of God that will never fall in. You won't have to be afraid. Over and over again, Philadelphia could understand what he was saying. But he says the door is open now, and, and as I thought about that open door, I couldn't help but think about Matthew 7. Verses 13 and 14, where we are given a choice between two gates or two doors. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Folks, there are two doors, and the door is broad and the, and the way is wide that leads down to destruction, but the, the door is narrow and the way is difficult that leads upward to salvation. Now, just because you and I are, have gone through that narrow door leading upward to salvation, that doesn't mean we can ignore the masses going down to destruction. Matter of fact, if those going down to destruction break God's heart, it ought to break our heart too. And if there's one or two or a dozen or a hundred that we can rescue from that broad path leading downward to destruction, it is incumbent upon us to do so. The one striding through that door ought to break our hearts. The narrow door leading upward to salvation, it says only a few find it, but that's not God's fault. It's God's desire that all be saved. It's our fault. 
because we haven't been faithful. We haven't gone through that open door to tell as many as we possibly can about Jesus. Like Philadelphia, we have a doorway of opportunity. We must take every opportunity to whittle away, to cut down that number that's headed downward and increase the number that's going through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. That is our responsibility. That is why God has left us here. We have a doorway of opportunity here in America and in many nations around the world right now. And as it says in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into the harvest. The harvest is ready. The harvest is ripe, but there just aren't enough laborers in it. And if God says that Philadelphia has an open door, how much more so do we in Tifton, Georgia? To whom much is given, much is required. The responsibility is ours. Let's bow together. God, we are overwhelmed by the masses who either are ignorant of or ignore the gospel and are headed downward to destruction. And we could shrug our shoulders and say, so be it. Or we could open our hearts and say, no, hear the gospel. Listen to what Jesus has done for you. Come to faith in him. Repent of your sins and be saved today. And if there's one, we can turn from that path to destruction and point them on the road to eternal life. That's our desire. And not just one Lord, but we ask for hundreds, we ask for thousands, we ask for millions. Because as long as there's one person on the face of this earth that does not know you, we cannot rest. We must not rest. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Open our hearts to the needs of others, to what opens your heart. You've given an open door for each one of us. We're standing on a threshold. Help us go through it and be faithful and persevere and hold fast to the word that you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is almost a mission hymn for invitation this morning. Here am I, send me. Don't say that if you don't mean it. Don't sing, don't don't say you believe unless you mean it. But if you are willing to go where God sends you to, to do what he asks you to do, here am I, send me, number 597. Maybe he's asking you to respond in faith today, professing your faith, rededicating your life. Maybe you need to join a church. You need to, to have a church family to come around you and encourage you and, and hold you accountable and grow you in the faith, whatever he's calling you to do. 597, I'll be here at the front to receive you. Come and share that.